welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Jose Estigarraga, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights, and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Reed Smith's Inter- International Arbitration Podcasts. This is Gautam Bhattacharya, a partner at Reed Smith. Today's edition is Spotlight on Shanine Parikh, who's a dear friend of mine and many more of us at Reed Smith. Um, Shanine is a senior litigation and arbitration partner at Cyril Amachan Mangaldas, one of India's premier law firms, and on any estimation, is one of India's foremost disputes practitioners and an inspirational lawyer in the field of international arbitration. And uh, I'm deeply honoured, Shanine, to be having this conversation with you today. So hello and welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Gautam, for thinking of me and inviting me. I'm very nervous, but also at ease because I have you interviewing me. And it's an absolute privilege. I'm delighted to be here. Well, no, thank you. That's that's wonderful. And Shanine, I've known you for over 20 years and we've had the you know, a great privilege, at least in my case, of working with you over the years and getting to know you so well. I'd be very interested if you could just share your thoughts for our listeners as to who has inspired you the most in your illustrious legal career to date, which now spans three decades. Thanks. Thanks, Gautam, for also putting my age out there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are the same age, Shani. We are are indeed. (laughs) I'd have to say there, there are two people really that come to mind. One of them is Darius Kambata. He is an eminent senior counsel in Bombay, has made huge strides in the international arbitration space. In fact, he sits on the SIAC court with me, and I also have the privilege of calling him my cousin. But not just because of that. I think um, it's from the time I was quite young, and every conversation I had with him, perhaps not about law in particular, but just how much he enjoyed what he was doing. And then later on, when I joined the profession, the incredible depth of his knowledge and both academic and practical approach to a matter, I, I just found inspirational. And he's, he's definitely one of my favorite counsel to brief. And the other person who I've drawn a lot of inspiration from is Justice Rointan Nariman and his, of course, his very illustrious father, Fali Nariman. He has, I, while I was making notes for this session, I, I was thinking of some of the judgments that I may perhaps refer to as being pro-arbitration judgments in the Indian arbitration landscape. And I think 70 to 80% of them because I was looking in the recent past, have all been authored by him. And he's a, he's a genius, I mean, and I think he's done so much for the legal fraternity and 
the arbitration landscape in India today. So he's definitely someone I would always also count. Well, those are two absolutely amazing names, Shanine. Um, I've had the privilege of working with Darius over the years, and I can absolutely reconfirm, if that should be needed, to our listeners just what an incredible lawyer Darius is, but also what a wonderful down-to-earth person he is. I also, as you know, Shanine, was with you when Justice Rohinta Nariman gave his um, speech of honour uh, at the GAR conference at New Delhi uh, in 2020. And one of the things which I certainly marveled at and which I remember commenting on after he'd spoken, because as you know, I was the co-chair of that conference, was that he had, he spoke for over 30 minutes in the most incredible way, going through cases, going through the law, citing paragraphs in judgments without any notes whatsoever. No written notes, no notes on an iPad, no notes on an iPhone. Quite extraordinary. Uh, and uh, I think that is something for us all to aspire to. So your your two inspirational people are certainly inspirations. Now, going back to Indian law and what you, because as you were mentioning, you were thinking about some Indian law in advance of this discussion. If you could share with us what have been the most interesting developments over the last, in, well, in recent years in arbitration law in India, and I know that you, of course, were recently involved for the successful party in the very prominent GE power case. So I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about some of those topical recent developments. And also, if you could touch upon what more do the Indian courts need to do to modernize arbitration in India? Yeah. So let, let me start before I go to the very eminent rulings of the Supreme Court to really the concerted effort the government has been making. Um, we had, before we had the amendments to the Arbitration Act in 2015, we had gone through three other bills, two other uh, law commission reports. But Quickly on the heels of 2015 amendments came 2019 amendments and thereafter 2021 amendments, most of which are good, but I think most importantly shows that the government is alive to the fact that arbitration as a mode of resolving disputes is something that is absolutely essential in India, it is not even an alternate form of dis uh, dispute resolution. Almost every single commercial contract will have an arbitration clause. And these amendments, so uh, uh, before I come to the rulings, I'll just touch upon what these amendments did. And the first was in 2015, two important amendments that were made were one, giving parties access to Indian courts for interim relief, even in arbitrations which were seated outside. Uh, that was very, that was something that was really needed because interim orders of foreign courts or tribunals are, of course, not enforceable in India. The second thing was to remove what was virtually an automatic stay of an award the moment it was challenged. And what used to happen is everyone knows about how long Indian courts take because they are so mm -hmm. overburdened with cases. But what used to happen before this amendment was that the award would be challenged 
quite obviously. And the strategy of the award debtor would be to drag proceedings through Indian courts for several years, leaving the claimant frustrated and resulting more often than not in a settlement. So it was almost rewarding the award debtor for filing a challenge, however frivolous. And the 2015 amendments took away that stay and provided that notwithstanding an award has been challenged, execution may continue. And what the courts have been doing now over the years is that they will grant a stay of the award only upon a deposit by the award debtor of the award amount and allow the claimant to withdraw that, of course, on furnishing a bank guarantee. But what this means is that frivolous petitions are discouraged and the claimant who has fought through this arbitration gets money in his hand at the end of the day. So I think these two were really path-breaking developments. Thereafter, the law as it evolved was to reiterate the narrow scope of review of an arbitral award. And that's what brought to my mind uh, judgments passed by uh, Justice Nariman in uh, matters such as Vidya Drolia and Sangyong, where the court reiterated that the scope of review of an award was extremely narrow. And all of this then brings more finality to awards generally. Mm-hmm. And in line with this kind of pro-arbitration trend, was the judgment that you refer to in uh, GE Power, where uh, that was an arbitration where two Indian entities arbitrated in Zurich as a foreign seat. And we were actually quite lucky in that. We were the respondents in the arbitration and we succeeded, but we also got a cost award in our favor, which allowed us to enforce it. And by filing the application, we were actually in season or control of the proceedings when we were able to drive them to some extent. And the Gujarat High Court ruled that it was not contrary to public policy for two Indian parties to choose a foreign seat. And interestingly, and I say this because we all know how long Indian courts can take. And again, I talk of (laughs) Justice Nariman. Uh, After the Gujarat High Court ruled that the award was enforceable, PASL filed a petition against that in the Supreme Court in February. We, uh, it came up before Justice Nariman. We were pushed into a hearing, or I should not say pushed because we were pushing for a quick hearing, of course, but the judgment came out in April. That's three months. Now, had it been any other bench, we might possibly have had the petition admitted and then waited for another five years until it was enforced. But this was quick. This was very pro-arbitration. And it really shows the mindset now of the judiciary on enforcing party autonomy, which is a fundamental bastion of arbitration and the Indian court's recognition of that. Well, I think, you know, that pro-arbitration move that shift is very important because i think as we all agree india needs to develop hugely it was felt over the years to just really move forward in terms of its arbitration stance and so these cases have been great to see and thank you for your comments there 
you know, one of the things I wanted to now just pick up on is you mentioned that you and Darius uh, were both members, are both members of the SEAC court. And it would be really interesting if you could tell us a little bit about what that role entails, because many of our listeners will not be aware at any level as to what being on the SEAC court actually means. So if you could just tell us a little bit about that, that would be great. So firstly, it, it's an absolute uh, honor to be on the SEAC court. It really oversees SEAC's case management. I mean, of course, I should also say that, as you know, SEAC is almost for any cross-border transaction uh, in India. SEAC is almost a default provision for arbitral rules. ICC and LCIA are also common. Singapore is a very is a preferred seat for arbitration within the region. So there are a lot of connections with Singapore uh, in any event. Now, the Court of Arbitration really oversees SEAC's case management, and it is comprised of 32, I think, eminent arbitration practitioners and arbitrators from around the world in both civil and common law traditions. Serving as a member of the court, often we are asked to rule on uh, consolidation or joinder applications prior to appointment of the tribunal. And this is before the arbitral tribunal has been constituted. And what that does is that it gives me an opportunity to learn from the best. We're typically put on a committee. The court members on the community, uh, on the committee, are usually from jurisdictions different from those of the case at hand. And we rule on joinder and consolidation, sometimes jurisdiction. And it's been an incredible learning experience for us and a way to really see how the institution itself functions and you get an insight into that into how the rules and the institution functions which are invaluable when you're a counsel in an arbitration there thank you for telling us about your role on the SEAC court i mean it really is a great honor that you've got to be on that institution and as you say the insights you get from doing that role as a practitioner are are invaluable now one area that's closely linked to that is, and I know this is an area that you and I both share a big passion for, and that's the achievement of true diversity in in, in international arbitration. Well, we know how important it is, and we know what role we as practitioners have in ensuring that. So I wonder what you could, what your thoughts are about what more can we do between us all in the international arbitration community to further the diversity, true, you know, true diversity of all types in international arbitration? So I think we need to recognize uh, a couple of things, which is that there are really two main stakeholders in the process. One is the team of lawyers. One is the team of clients. Very often, I think the stakeholder that does the most or is the most conscious of it, is the stakeholder that supports the process, which is the arbitral institution. 
And of course, many law firms, we included, have signed up to the equal representation uh, pledge. I think the first step really is to buy in to why diversity is important. I don't think it is important only because you need to give other kinds of people a chance because at the end of the day, you want a team, whether it is a tribunal of arbitrators, it is a team of lawyers, you want a team that is best for the case. So, uh, you know, in, in India, we have uh, a reservation quota of backward, uh, you know, tribes or castes. And true diversity is, is, is not about that. Maybe some thought must be there to give others a chance, but it is also based on merit. And what I think is that each of these stakeholders must have on top of their minds why diversity is important. Yes, it is, of course, to give others a chance where they may not have otherwise been considered earlier. So the easiest way is to talk about women who and the suffragette movement and why were women not given uh, votes. Uh, but the other thing is that where you have a diverse panel of arbitrators, for instance, or you have a diverse team of individuals, you can see it working in cross-border disputes where there are teams working across jurisdictions. It is that each can bring a different viewpoint to the matter at hand. And I think that can be incredibly valuable to a case. So I think it should be looked at more from that perspective. And what we can do, I think, is to be conscious of it and look for it. Like what I try to do is, of course, often it is ultimately the clients who will decide. But I will always, while suggesting uh, the names of arbitrators to a client, I will al always ensure that I have diversity at the top of my mind. So it's not choosing one over. If all things are equal, maybe you want to choose someone who is ethnically or uh, gender diverse. Mm -hmm. But uh, so I really think it's a consciousness that needs to be built until it becomes all, almost automatic. And you don't say things like, oh, I have a webinar and I'm going to constitute a panel, but I need to make sure that I have a woman and a, someone from a different jurisdiction or race on the panel. That's a first step. And I think the consciousness is what we all need to imbibe. Thank you, Shani. A couple of last things to just wrap up, if I may. You are, as I've said at the beginning of this podcast, you are on any estimation, a most inspirational lawyer, full stop. You also happen to be an inspirational female lawyer on top of that. So uh, I wonder if you could just share very briefly some top tips for, for some aspiring young lawyers who are just starting out or maybe early on in their career as to what you think they could do to one day become like you. So are we, are we now uh, gender agnostic in this question? Absolutely <laughs> agnostic. Absolutely agnostic. So I'm going to answer it in two parts. I, the first, I am going to not be gender agnostic. And I'm going to say for the women out there today, I think it's, it's partly a generational thing. Again, a testament to my age. I think in my generation, 
I feel I was a little diffident in putting my hand up or asserting myself in several ways that I could have done nicely. Nobody needs you to be particularly aggressive about it. But I think that the that the kids of today, not just the women really, are a lot more confident than I was in my time. And that that's a big thing. It is to put your hand up to ask, to feel it's okay to ask mm-hmm. for things or recognition or work, which we would have, you know, it was almost at that time, put your head down and you'll get noticed. That's, that's not the case anymore. So that is one thing. The other really is is love love the work that you do i think as litigators we're so privileged if you want to be a lawyer i think being a litigator or arbitrator is the most fun because today you're you're arguing a matter on a financial product tomorrow it may be on the construction of a bridge and on the third it may be an ip infringement so it's the most varied i think irrespective of what kind of practice you have your your case is one 90 percent on the facts and 10 percent on the law so mm-hmm. it's a mastery of facts really um i think is the most important thing and particularly from the indian perspective really i uh, a lot of people ask me how do we get into international arbitration and what i say to them is don't be in that much of a rush the international arbitration practice today you may get your uh, you may get to see your tribunal and argue before your tribunal only at the stage of final hearing particularly now where we cannot travel physically procedural orders even interim applications are taking place through audio or video conferences whereas in court I I can't tell you how much I've learned from just sitting and waiting for my matter to reach in a court, hearing other seniors argue. You get so much more face time before the judges and a lot more chances of advocacy. And what I would say is take that advantage and don't be in a rush to just Mm. move immediately into the international arbitration space. Very wise advice, unsurprisingly, from you, Shani. And the last thing, I, you know, hope is a great thing. And the last 18 months have been very testing for us all globally. But when eventually this world of ours gets a bit better and is a bit kinder to us and we can travel, where would you, which country or place would, would you and your, your husband, Koshal, who I, of course, know very well, and your lovely son, Vivan, who I also know very well. Where would you love to travel as soon as you can travel freely again? Oh, that that's a no-brainer. It will have to be Barcelona. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think you knew the answer before you asked it. But, you know, right now, anywhere, really, I mean, it would be lovely to be able to get out. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And on that wonderful note, Thank you very much, Shanine. It's been a privilege and, a, and an honor to speak to you on this podcast. Thank you very much for sharing your views so charmingly and, and so intelligently with us all. It's been, it's been wonderful to have you on. And I look forward to seeing you again, um, hopefully sometime very soon. So thank you again, Shanine. And thank you all for listening on this podcast.
Thank you, Gautam, and thank you, Reed Smith. It's been an honor, a pleasure, and a privilege. Thank you. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email Joseas de Garaga at jia at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcasts on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reedsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.